you like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of a hawk. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patrick Green. How are you? I'm well. Uh, I'm struck by the fact that we haven't done this episode yet, because it's one that we've talked about doing now since basically the movie came out, um, and one that we've you know found endless excuses to filter in throughout a million other conversations. But we did scroll all the way back, and we have not actually done this episode yet. Um, and I'm I'm really excited tonight to talk about the score, the 2049 with you, my friend. I'm excited as well. And uh, before we get into it, just a little bit of an announcement or a big announcement. Our third co-host, Dan Verlito, has stepped down from the show. We will miss him. He's been a great component to this team that we've built. Dan has started Danger Close. That is taking all of his attention. It's a great show. Go check it out. He's still, those of you who are connected with him on Facebook, he's still there. We're still friends with him. It was just the right decision for him in this moment. So we love Dan. We thank him for all he's contributed to our show and we wish him the best. Yeah, like Jamie said, Dan is a huge part not only of this show, but of our lives and of Blade Runner fandom. And he is somebody who, whether or not he's appearing on episodes, is very much present in all these conversations. So, um, you know, as we were scrolling through, I was just mentioning to check if we'd already recorded this score episode tonight. You know, I was also scrolling through the history of the show a little bit. And um, getting back to those early episodes where he had first come on, you know, Dan, for those of you who might have come on later, wasn't here originally. He joined a few months after the show started as uh, a listener who was writing in with some really insightful things and, you know, eventually formed a friendship with Jamie and then with me and then came on board the show. Uh, so he's, you know, been a, a real part of the fabric of this for a long time, and he will continue to be a part of the fabric of our lives um, forever. But um, but thank you, Dan, from from the bottom of all of our hearts for the incredible contributions that you've made to the show, to the live event, to getting our Patreon going so strong, and to getting our uh, our episodes better than they've ever been. We will continue that legacy. And uh, yeah, sorry to drop that on everybody at the beginning of this, of this show. But um, that being said, we're going to forge on and return to 2049 tonight with this conversation about music. Jamie, you want to kind of get us, get us back on track? Yeah, well... In terms of the music for 2049, that was one of my biggest questions. Obviously, before the film came out, even though we knew who Denis was, my question was, what's this music going to sound like? Because Blade Runner is, is as equally music as it is story and narrative and characters. So I was like, well, what's this, what is this going to be like? And we knew that Vangelis, Vangelis was not going to be in 
or doing the score, which was, of course, a big like, what? You know, and then there was Johan Johansson, who people loved. We weren't really sure. And then he dropped out um, or I don't really think he dropped out. They let him go, essentially. And they brought Hans Zimmer in, which was the big name. And then we heard about this guy named Benjamin Walfish. But still, knowing all of these things, knowing that Vangelis wasn't involved, knowing that Johan Johansson wasn't involved, loving the score for Arrival, thinking, oh, he's got that texture. He could probably do this. I was concerned. And then delightfully, delightfully um, put at ease after hearing the score, even though Patrick didn't like it at all when he first heard it. <laughs> <laughs> I liked it a little bit when I first heard it, Jamie. But I, I have to say, I did not like, as as I am on record having said many times, that to me it was the weakest part of the film compared to the first movie mm-hmm. for for a while. Mm-hmm. And and th- I mean, I, I I still you know it's it, I think it stacks up to the original, but there is something just completely you know unimitatable about Vangelis's original. Is that score. a word? Imitatable. It's, it's I think it's inimitable, but okay. I'm, I'm going to say onomatopoeia. There's something there's something about Vangelis' score that was so groundbreaking and so different, and it's really hard to compare them. And to compare them, I think, is to miss the brilliance of what Walfish and Zimmer did. I want to posit that we use Walfish's name before Zimmer's name in general, I think. When we as fans talk about the score, because he did so much work on this thing, and this the way that we'll, we'll get into a little bit of how the score came together, but you know this happened while Zimmer was on tour. I'm not taking anything away from Hans Zimmer. I am absolutely in love with his music. I'm so excited about his Dune score. We've been mm-hmm. listening to the Sketchbook nonstop. He's one of my absolute favorite film composers, and I think he's a really magnanimous, great dude, great collaborator. I'm not picking on him by saying that Zimmer that that Walfish did more of the work. But I'm pointing out the fact that that most of Hans Zimmer's contributions were just about a week and a half on this thing. He basically helped out with he saw the screening of the film with Walfish and Joe Walker and with with Denis Villeneuve. And then he basically, you know, played around on the synth for a few minutes and he's like, okay guys, I gotta get on the road. And then uh, Walfish kind of took what Hans Zimmer was playing around with and made this, you know, score out of it. And then Zimmer came back and they collaborated really, really intensely, you know, remotely. And then for this week and a half, but for the most part, this is really Benjamin Walfish's thing. But as you said, before we even get into that, there's this really interesting early period with this score that as we move away from it in time, it's becoming easier, you know, the sort of fog of, of time is setting into it. But even before Johan Johansson, this was such a hot topic. As soon as this movie was announced, the, this, you know, the first question was, uh, like, is Harrison Ford in it? And then the second question that everybody had was, is Vangelis doing the music? And as soon as it was clear that that was not happening, you know, everybody was like, who could possibly do mm-hmm. do anything that would, you know, resemble that score? And a lot of musicians were brought in to improvise. One of them that I love, people might not know this, but LP, one half of, of Run the Jewels, which is one of my favorite hip hop groups, he actually um, com- composed some spec music for it um, just as like an audition. People were invited to contribute stuff, but it was really a huge unknown about where this would go. And then to have Johan Johansson, who, as you mentioned, was was a frequent collaborator of Denny's, whether it be Arrival or Sicario, but also had just, you know, won the Golden Globe for Theory of Everything, which is another great score. You know, somebody whose career was just exploding up vertically and to have him then drop from the project, right? Said a lot of things to me as somebody on the outside of this looking in feverishly. It said, one, that they were not taking any, that they were not taking for granted 
how important this was to mm-hmm. get right. Mm-hmm. And two, that Denis Villeneuve is a more pragmatic filmmaker than I think I realized. Yeah. And by that, I mean, I think of him as a very emotional filmmaker. Obviously, he's more than just an emotional filmmaker, but I think of his decisions as very kind of emotional. And that's something you hear from a lot of people. And I think a lot of the time it's easy for people who are emotional, like me and like you, if I may say so. Of course. Sometimes we can let that cloud some of our decision-making with things, or we can become attached to things that we shouldn't become attached to for too long, you know, or we can be on projects for longer than we need to be. Um, but early on in this process, Denny, who had worked with, with Johan Johansson and loved him like a brother, was like, nope, <laughs> like you're gone. And that's a huge deal. And it showed me that like Denny is not going to take any, he's not going to take anything for granted. This will be something that is fully thought out from the very beginning. And it's going to be the movie that it needs to be. And that is what it became. Yeah. And uh, then they turned in something incredibly powerful, um, incredibly timeless and atmospheric and haunting unimitatable unimitatable and <laughs> granular um yeah yeah the score was just exquisite and they were able to capture something different than vangelis captured i'm gonna just call him vangelis he's called evangelis and people give me shit about Vangelis. I'm calling him Vangelis. You know, this this is going to be a constant point because we do get hate mail for saying his name with the soft G. So I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna stay with Vangelis because I've been through this now but with people in Greece. You in do Greece, Vangelis. He he'll call himself Evangelis. I know. So I know. Um, whatever. You uh, do yours. I'll do mine. I like the and soft that way nobody, G. Nobody can get nobody can get totally mad that way. Yeah. But to the point of Walfish really created something that is sonically a cousin to what Vangelis did while going in a completely different direction. It's less hopeful. It's darker. It's full of longing and desire, which was completely right for 2049. I thought it was brilliant. It did. T- it took a while to be immersed in this new Blade Runner, even though the film is four years old at this point. Yes, it is. It's four years old. It, Next month. Yeah. It, it took a while to let that new world uh, pass through us and we needed to sit and marinate in it for a while and part of that experience was the music this isn't the music of Vangelis this isn't anything that we were familiar with even though there are hints of it in there for sure lots of hints this was a new world for some some people of course that didn't work it wasn't the music of Vangelis it, it wasn't the world that Ridley Scott created and they walked away from it or whatever um but I, I, I think it's wholly triumphant. I think that what you're talking about speaks to issues people have in general with this movie. A lot of the people I know who haven't embraced it still, which are not that many people, but there are people out there who haven't, are people who are really hung up on this idea that it's not the original film, right? In my experience, at least, very few people who have issues of 2049 are saying it's a bad movie, or they're saying it's poorly made or poorly acted. They're saying... You know, Ridley Scott in 1982 came out with something that was completely unique and beautiful. And this is not that movie again. It's not just a return to what we know. And it's uncomfortable. And 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 I, you know, not to toot my own horn, like I, I was not going into the 2049 in October of 2017, you know, with that expectation because, you know, I'd seen enough by that point in trailers and I know I knew, you know, Denny enough by that point as a filmmaker, that I, I knew this was going to be something different. But the music to me, because the Vangelis score is so imprinted on me, 
that was something where I was fighting in the theater. And especially because you have to remember for people who might not know this, you know, or forgotten this at this point, I am a composer professionally. That's like what my training is, what I went to school for. That's what I still do a lot now. So I think whenever I'm encountering any piece of music, I can't help but be analytical about it, even if I'm just sort of letting it kind of wash over me. I'm, I'm thinking about a million different things because I'm very trained to, just like you are when you watch movies, Jamie. And for me, uh, you know, a lot of the, the differences between this and the Vangelis score were things that rubbed me the wrong way, right? They were things that felt kind of lazy to me the first time. And that, I'm being completely honest mm-hmm, with that. Mm-hmm. There are still stretches of this that feel lazy to me. Interesting. There are still okay. plenty, of, plenty of passages in it that I think are basically just sort of waiting for something to happen in the movie. So they're just sort of holding some chords out mm-hmm. for a really long time and putting some kind of weird noises in the background. But it's not propulsive and it's not necessarily super immersive. But then the parts that are, the parts that really got that attention are incredible you know it's also worth pointing out that this was produced really quickly the movie was already done they only had a few months to pull this together whenever that is a factor you're going to have moments where you're holding a cord out for a long time waiting for something to happen in the movie to get the timing right and to just avoid having to orchestrate everything to do a million things what i think works best about this score is the parts where you can tell that Walfish and Zimmer, because he was a part of a lot of these synth discussions, where they were really having fun with synthesizers. That is something that I think just is all over this movie. There's this overriding aesthetic thing that Walfish and Zimmer have talked about in interviews where they were talking with Denis and with other people involved in the movie, and they were like, let's try to make the sonic equivalent of more human than human. Let's try to make something where you know we, we allow the synthetic elements of our score, meaning the analog synth, or the, the CS80s, the you know the the multiphonic synthesizers, the ribbon synths, the granular synthesizers, the digital synths, all of these different things, these instruments that they had, um, including and the actual C, there is an actual CS80 that's all over the soundtrack. Um, we allow them to play with the sounds a lot, and we take the reins off, and we let you know all these different filters. These, whether it's a sweep filter or like an LFO, we let them all play with these noises that we're making and see what happens with mm-hmm. it. So overall, I mean, you hear it from the very beginning of the score, this idea of transformation. And that was something that I did notice the first time I watched it and something that I've continually come back to where, you know, you have that initial theme that comes back over and over and over again. But, uh, it, you know, the first time you hear it, it's basically on a piano and then every single time it comes back, it, there are more synths added to it and it swells more. It's mm-hmm. more interesting and it's more binaural in the stereo mix. Uh, you know, you have a lot of moments where notes are just held out for a really long time because, you know, they'll play it on one synth and then they'll catch it with a processor. And then that processor will stretch the noise out for a long time mm-hmm. and fill reverb in mm-hmm. and then put a pass through filter on it and then let it kind of just like spin off into space. There's a lot of these moments where the sound world kind of uh the gates come off and it's allowed to play and and those are the moments where i think the score shines the most there are also plenty of beautiful quiet moments in the score there's plenty of beautiful melodic moments in the score there's plenty of really interesting timbral things going on with the way things sound but to me the 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 parts that stick with me the most are the parts where the synthesizers are allowed to speak for themselves Mm -hmm. and that's something that um, I think is in some ways an improvement on the Vangelis score because, you know, Vangelis, although he was using synthesizers in remarkably expressive ways, was, um, 
you know, he, he wasn't, he didn't have access to the full panoply of things that people have access to, you know, now. I mean, I'm sure he does in his studio in 2021, but in the early 1980s, he didn't. So it's great that they've embraced digital technologies and other types of processing technologies to transform those original sort of analog sounds like that CS80 into something otherworldly. What's interesting that I notice about the score for 2049 is that it's a cleaner sound as a whole than than Jell's, which his work was very textural. There's hundreds or thousands of things. I mean, probably not literally, but it sounds like it going on. And you don't know if it's, is this the sound people adding Foley and that kind of thing, or is this the score? Um, but Ben Gellis did. I'm vacillating between Ben Gellis and Ben Gellis. <laughs> it's, it's, Whatever. It's exciting because I'm Whatever. waiting to see what it's going to be. <laughs> but the score for 2049 is cleaner. It's less immer- It's not less immersive. It's not the si- Well, it's also not the same kind of world that we're again that we're used to. It's it's a different world. It's it's a quieter world. It's not a, as a hopeful. Even as dark as 2019 is, there's hope in that world. There really is. Um, oh and yeah. With 2049, there's less hope, and I think much of that what we're hearing is what almost Kay is hearing in a way, where he lives this very quiet, dull, sanitized, hopeless life, and the score really, really reflects that, in my opinion. I mean, then there are flourishes like was it Mesa, where you hear the yeah which i love yeah. i love that i love that um and what's interesting you never hear that again you only hear it one time in the in the, in the no film. that comes back yes it does in, the, in blade runner the 10 minute track towards the end of the movie well that's not, the not end the though outro, that's during but... the that's during the credits it doesn't right but oh but so during the actual movie itself it might not that might be the only time you hear yeah, that. it only yeah. it only shows up one time which is fine yeah um but i thought oh this is so beautiful and and when they when the film was up for Academy Awards, and when it won the two for for the effects and for um, Deacons, they used that flourish uh, mm-hmm. to announce Blade Runner has won an Academy Award. But again, that's a moment. In I the, remember that. Yeah, yeah, that's a moment in the film that I really, really love. Um, it really encaptures the wonder of that world because it is a new world for us and the scope of it, how large it is, what's going on. We're seeing LA and the LA area in a way we've never seen it before. 2019 never did that. We never had those. I mean, we had some Vista shots, but only of like the Tyrell building in LA itself. Never anything further. Never the ocean. Nothing like that. So I think, again, to your point, Wallfish does some things that the score for Vangelis does not do, where it expands the world and it, it, it tells a little bit of a bigger story. Like there's some other things happening as well. It, it, it's just amazing. I mean, I, I listen to it all the time. I should say to our listeners, we made this, or I made this edit called the Orion Mix or whatever. whatever the Orion called. Edition. The Orion Edition. And it's on uh, YouTube for free. And I mixed it as if the same way, well, not the same way, but in honor of the original score that was released by Vangelis and the record company back in, I think it was 92, they released that score. So and I, I included pieces of or portions of the, the movie, dialogue, dialogue flourishes just to kind of bring the whole score together because I felt like the score needed that kind of release. 
And that's the one thing about even the release of the score that I felt like, yes, the score was great, but they did this standard release. They didn't really make it creative when they released it. And you had all these tracks and a lot of it goes together, but then you've got like three songs by Elvis. And I'm just like, we don't, we don't need all of, like they didn't really curate that score when they released it. And I did because I wanted something better. Um, and I love what I, I, I made, um, not to toot my own horn, but it's the kind of immersion that the film does that I wanted to re-experience. So I wanted to recreate that. But so for the release of the score, I felt like they dropped the ball a little bit. Yeah, and they haven't revisited it. There hasn't been any new pressings of it. There's no additional material. And a very common complaint is the Sinatra and the Elvis stuff, and especially the the final music that plays during the credits too. It's just, it's just it rips the immersion out so much. It's a weird experience to be listening to it and to be so enraptured by a track like Mesa, for example, and then to have this like pop standard come on. Not that there's anything wrong with those, but just that they're they're very clearly of our world, and that is a problem. <laughs> Actually, I didn't really thought of this. That's a weird issue with 2049 because 2019 very clearly establishes the fact that this is a parallel future. That's mm-hmm. not actually our universe. Um, and, you know, that's and it's all over the script. It's all over subsequent, you know, historiography of it. It's, you know, interviews. Um, but in 2049, you do get, you know, actual Frank Sinatra singing as a hologram. You know, you get actual Elvis as a hologram singing, you know, in a ballroom. And that is uh, that's. I don't know if it's problematic, but it's something that I haven't honestly considered until right now. But it's 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 reflected in the listening experience because you're listening to this Blade Runner parallel universe where everything is different and the same at the same time, and then you're broken out by things that are that are come on you know old timey radio stations in our actual universe, and it's a little weird. I want to go back for a second though, Jamie, to something. Oh, actually, before I do, I want to say. You know, my favorite memory of the Orion edition is the fact that the first time the download code was handed out to people was at the live event in 2019. Mm -hmm. So I have these really great memories and I still have my, you know, my printed out sheet of uh, of people getting that at the event, which was just great. And again, it puts a smile on my face because I'm thinking of Dan and, you know, what a great time we had at that event. Um, But uh, going back for a second to Mesa in particular, you know, contrast a track like Mesa with a track like Tales of the Future from Mm -hmm. the Vangelis score, right? Mm -hmm. You're absolutely right. They could not be more different, at least aesthetically, right? Tales of the Future has like very clearly ethnically influenced world music, you know, by that. I mean, you have almost like Kowali singing from Pakistan going mm-hmm, on. Mm-hmm. You know, you have tons of percussion and bells and chimes and, you know, because Vangelis built himself this studio that was just full of hand percussion instruments. And then he would sit there and he would layer synthesize it for hours. And then he would just like close his eyes and start banging on, you know, on Tycho and things in the background because he, you know, that, that was his sound that he was going for. Mm-hmm. And because that reflected the dense streets that were so multicultural and so full of different languages and people of different backgrounds and different religious beliefs cohabitating in this really confined space, bumping into each other. And that's what that soundtrack sounds like to me. It sounds like a spice market, right? It it sounds like just all these incredible sights and sounds and flavors and and worldviews exploding together. Um, You take a track like Mesa from 2049, and the audio mix for it is so broad and vast and simple. And that's something that I think is really interesting, which again, the first time I saw it, translated as laziness to me having now seen it a thousand times it does not feel late it feels like a choice now it doesn't feel lazy to me in any way um but what i love about mesa in particular other than the fact that it's got that instantly iconic almost hymn-like melody to Mm -hmm. it it really feels like church music to Mm -hmm. me um 
is that it's basically the soundtrack of a guy and his gal taking a ride together, right? I mean, it starts with him saying, you want to go for a ride, right? And she can now, that's part of the beauty of that moment is she can go for a ride and he can have his love with him, right? So they're they're taking this drive. <laughs> Don't even fucking start with that. This is not another joy episode. We will have one. It though. will be. Um, but there is love in that moment. Mm-hmm. I think to anybody yeah. other than Jamie. And there's wonder in the moment too. And there's a sense of transcend- transcendence going on. I almost said transcension. My words are all over the place tonight. So what I what I love there is that, you know, you have this really simple melody that plays, and it's very beautiful and very timeless and very earthy and very uh, spiritual. And yet, what they're doing in reality is touring a garbage dump, right? Like they are flying <laughs> flying out of the city into a no man's land, dodging debris falling. And, you know, about to get taken down by a bunch of bandits with with missile launchers and grappling hooks, right? And yet in that one moment, it's just, it, it reminds me almost of a bicycle built for two. It's like they're out for this beautiful Sunday morning drive and there's nothing else in the world. Even though it's this bleak landscape and even though there's all these things to be afraid of, it's there's something very simple about that moment. And there aren't very many moments of real simplicity in the Vangelis score where there are Sometimes they come across a little kind of anachronistic to me, like Rachel's song, for example, feels kind of out of place in the Vangelis score to mm-hmm. me. Um, so it's an interesting, I'm glad that you brought Mesa up in particular because I, it's one of my favorite tracks. And I think it's one of the ones that best illustrates how different these two sort of approaches can be. To the point of Mesa, when we're seeing it, it it's a needed break from the fog, the emotional fog and the the darkness of the world of 2049. Again, it is not the world of 2019, which is dark as well. It is a dark world, but it's laced with a lot of hope. And there's so much, the streets are alive with people. Uh, Humans have not lost, have not lost at that point, their lust for life. You feel it in the streets. You see it. People are going about their day. In 2019... People are in a hurry. Yeah. You notice that? Yeah. Right? There's nobody in a hurry in 2049 and they're because going... everybody's being dragged. Yeah. And, you know, the, most of the people you see are the people in the stairwell, maybe living there because there's nowhere else to live. Um, so we're leaving all of that for a moment during the Mesa track, and then we're almost POV of joy. Because Kay's seen all this before. It's not new to him. But to Joy, these these are new things. And, you know, they're at the seawall and you see the ship, which is funny because people said, we've talked about this before, people thought the ship looks like the Sulaco. If you look again, it actually looks nothing like the Sulaco. They look nothing alike. The only, there's a spire on the end of it that might make you think of the Sulaco. That's it. The, the ships are completely different. Anyways, um, but it's a great moment of relief. It's a great moment of beauty in a film that doesn't have a lot of it. it. Has a lot of darkness and and tumult and strife and not knowing what's real or what isn't real. But in those moments, we know what's real. We know what's beautiful. So I think it was a really wise decision on their part to say, let's rise above the city. Let's go out from it and let's enjoy it for a little bit. Because soon enough, they're blown out of the sky. They're down. They go into the, you know, he goes into the the orphanage. That's dark. And, you know, and then everything else happens from there. But I, again, I think it was a really wise choice. 
Yeah, it's a moment of real humanity. There's another moment uh, that I, I, I want to make sure we circle back to also in its joys theme, which I think is just, it's just yes. one of my, it, it, that has Benjamin Walfish written all over it. So it. Anybody, I, I, I really can't speak highly enough of him. He, he, by the way, has been really great with our show. Like we've talked to him for years now. We just haven't gotten the timing right for him to come on, but he has always responded to us and been very kind. So hopefully he will be on at some point the show. Um, but he, you know, he's somebody who I can't speak highly enough about as a, as a composer myself, I have such respect for his craftsmanship, for the way that he puts things together and his music for it. Um, both chapters of it, I think is just, it's, it's also, it's one of those soundtracks that I listen to all the time Mm -hmm. and that feels instantly iconic to me. And a lot of the more nostalgic elements in that, like the music that the kids, you know, that represents the children or, or that represents the memories of, you know, growing up in the town of Derry, like those, those things to me are all over joy's theme. There's this beautiful sense of naivete and of timelessness to mm-hmm. her music. Mm-hmm. Um, the first time, of course, you hear it is on the rain, on the roof as the rain is falling. And it's just this moment, again, where it's just K and Joy. I mean, I think there's many reasons why Joy is something that sticks out to people. There's a million reasons for it. For for me and for Micah and for others who really feel connected to her as a character, like it's those moments where you have this movie that's so bleak and oppressive and heavy, and then you have these incredible reveries, right? Like her on the rooftop with Kay with a kanji in the background, like in the oh, yeah. and the raindrops falling. It is Pure just a moment of such bliss and yeah. Blade Runner yeah. and beauty. And it doesn't feel like the first film, but it feels so much like the first film mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And when as her theme comes back through the film, um, every time I hear it, I, I get that moment of like that little bit of getting choked up because there is something so beautiful and peaceful about her music. Um, no, it's interesting it about that feel scene contrived. too. Yeah. yeah, what's interesting about that scene is when in 2019 the rain starts falling and the rain is falling on Roy and he's in his death phase you know he's about to retire naturally and that same rain wakes up Joy it wakes her up to life she's discovering it she's discovering wow like they're similar scenes um, but life is happening and death is happening anyways yeah that's a really good way to look at it it's you know what's interesting. I hadn't thought of that before, but they're both also on rooftops, yeah, right? Yeah. And one's at the end of the film, and one's at the beginning of the film. And of course, the music that accompanies that moment in the at the end of the first film comes back at the end of the second film, yeah. As well, which is another interesting thing. And both of those themes, you know, both the the you know tears and rain music from 2019, as well as the rain music, and it's also called Rain from mm-hmm. 2049. Mm-hmm. Um, it, they're both like the slowest, most spiritual you know again with quotations around it sounding or maybe not with quotations around it. i think it is spiritual sounding pieces in both of those movies where there's a sense of stasis and timelessness to it mm-hmm. like it's something that could have been from you know the late renaissance but it also could have been from the future at the same time and that to me is where blade runner sits most comfortably is something that's ancient and futuristic at the same time you know yeah and i do think it's funny that they titled tears and rain on the 2049 soundtrack tears in the rain yeah i don't know if that was purposeful they just didn't do their homework or what it was very interesting i i i do have criticism for the soundtrack release much like i have criticisms for the way the film itself was released to the public when it became available on 4k and and blu-ray they just 
There was no love. They just threw it out there, just made it available. There's no behind the scenes documentary. And they there's so much documentation of 2049. And I'm like, put something together. Now, hopefully next year is the 40th anniversary of Blade Runner. Hopefully they reissue 2049 with a behind the scenes documentary. That's what it needs. And it needs some great variant posters. Um, I, I don't want to get too far because we're talking about the score, but I was really and continue to be really let down by the way the score was treated for the to release. Like, I mean, come on, like this is this is legacy product here, man. Like, and also Blade Runner, the original film, you know, when they re-released that for the final cut, you had what's his name? Um, do this the the poster for it. Drew Struzan did the poster for it. Mm-hmm. They treated it like like the 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 royalty that it is and 2049 did not get that treatment and i was like what what what's the where's the disconnect here anyways well hopefully next year being the fifth anniversary of 2049 and the 40th anniversary of blade runner I, you know that could be a, a good opportunity to do that definitely you're right we we know that there's a lot of documentation because we've gotten about nine titan books with behind the scenes yeah. things, you know yeah. there's plenty of it and and Denny's wife, who was on set the entire time, is a journalist, mm-hmm. Tanya, and mm-hmm. she was you know doing all of this stuff in the background. Tanya, what's her last name? Lahane, no Lapointe. Lahane, <laughs> Tanya Lapointe, not Lane. Um, anyway, so yeah, I I think you're absolutely right, and it's definitely due for that, and it's due for you know a a, a release that has more stuff you know in it. Um, I have a question for you. I though. think, yeah, go yeah, but go ahead. Well, I was going to move on to another track. So when we first started talking about the score within the first year or so of release, you mentioned this three-pronged or three – how did you say it? I can't remember what you said. You're like, there's three notes that this score moves between. And I'd never understood what you were talking about. I'm wondering if you could explain that to me and to our listeners. Yeah, well, so so I I, I think what I was probably referring to was the – those four notes mm-hmm. that make up that the the K theme, mm-hmm. the searching theme. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably the context that they came up that that came up in. That comes back, you know, continually through the movie over and over again. And like I was mentioning earlier, you know, you hear it right after the first, uh, you know, intro scroll starts, mm-hmm. and then it, you know, basically comes back. Of course, climactically comes back in one of my favorite tracks, which was actually the one I was going to go to next, which is Seawall, which I think is a, another oh, really great one. So right? amazing. And then that one, not only is that theme played very loudly and proudly, it's played with the CS80 in the front. And it's just this like wonderful, feels like this like, you know, huge choir singing it almost. The idea with that theme is, uh, and I don't know for a fact that this is the theme that they're talking about, but I, I assume it is. When they had that initial screening with Walfish and Zimmer and Walker and Villeneuve, um, Zimmer like got up during the movie and went over to his keyboard and he was like, I have this idea. I have something I need to get out. And he went and he, and he played a chord. Walfish said it was a chord progression. Um, there's obviously is a chord progression underpinning that, you know, melody, but I'm assuming, I, I feel like that was probably what Zimmer was. He, he was like, there's this, this little, this little motif, these four notes that speak to me about where K is going and speak to me about the unknowns about his situation. And there's something mysterious and open-ended about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is what Zimmer came up with in that recording room. I would love to know if the screening room, rather, I would love to know if that was the case or not. So if anybody has more information, please, you know, tell us. But the idea with that, you know, it's something that musically speaking, I think is really interesting, right? It starts uh so basically the entire thing outlines 
one chord, right? It doesn't actually go anywhere harmonically, but it starts with the major third going up to the fourth, going up to the flat sixth, and then going down to the fifth. So it's basically taking a, a ma making a major chord with that major third and then taking it up, using it as a leading tone to that fourth, which is the second note, then revealing that that fourth is actually part of a minor chord by going up to that flat sixth note and then dropping down another half step to the dominant note of the chord that we started with. And so that whole thing is basically snaking around our, uh, harmony that could be a couple of different things depending on how you listen to it, right? It could be going somewhere or it could be coming from somewhere or it could be a drone that doesn't go anywhere at all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I think is kind of interesting musically about that, other than the fact that it's like really simple, is the fact that it is open to interpretation, right? So when you listen to that theme, that you could hear it as something kind of, you know, well, let me ask you, how do you hear that? What, what does that make you feel when you listen to that? So which are we talking about that opening drone? What you're talking right. about? Right. So, so, so the, the, the notes, so basically it's, it's and then over that you have. Yeah. 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 That little thing. Yeah. Um, that, how does that like strike you emotionally? Um, longing, longing, mm. sadness, um, pointlessness drifting off into not like it's it's really powerful it's really really mm. powerful to me for me to hear it it sounds like someone is lost their heart is lost but it also it's k it, it's k's theme in my opinion that's who he is he's this kind of lifeless for all intents and purposes robot even though we don't really know exactly what they are um drifting asleep at the wheel drifting off into nowhere it's kind of nebulous, um, but it's painful too, to me. It's got it's a, there's this painful longing in it. Yeah, it's beautifully said. That that's that's similar to how I hear that. Uh, there's musical reasons why you might be hearing it like that too. One of which is the fact that the root of that chord, which is ba, is not in the melody at all. So you're starting with like these different members of that of that chord, but not the, the one that actually defines home, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. So that home is missing from it. And then you have these things kind of flittering around above it, outlining what harmony it could be. Mm -hmm. But the that root of the chord only exists very low down. Um, and it's absent from the actual melody. Mm -hmm. And so what I think happens whenever anybody hears something, whether they're consciously thinking this or not, that doesn't have a root in it, is you start kind of filling it in for yourself. You start kind of putting it in, being like, okay, this is tonally where this fits. This is kind of harmonically how this goes. Mm -hmm. um, and they don't give you that. E even when it comes back in Seawall, the actual, you know, there is a root to the chord, obviously, that's being played down super low, but the actual melody isn't playing it. The melody still is lacking a home base. Mm. And so it's it's a simple thing. It's not like this is crazy advanced music theory or anything. But it's a really effective device because that thing will always sound like it's longing to get somewhere, mm -hmm. but never quite doing it. And especially because that harmony never changes. It doesn't actually resolve to anything. I'm going to do a quick music theory nerd out for a second and do something that I, I if people want to turn this off, you're welcome to. But earlier you were talking about life and death happening simultaneously, right? You're talking about the death of Roy Batty and the life of this new love of, of joy coming out and walking out into the rain, right? Um a composer who uh, is uh, so from a social standpoint and from a moralistic standpoint, hugely problematic. So I'm not going to give him credit for anything outside of his music, but, but Richard Wagner, 
um, has this very famous piece uh, at, called Tristan und Isolde, mm -hmm. which is an opera, very famous opera. It's all over. If anybody knows Lars von Trier's Melancholia, which I know you do, that is the theme that is playing throughout the entire movie is that particular. Isn't it in Covenant uh, too? Don't they use that in Covenant a little bit? For they a use Wagner in Covenant, okay. but it's, that's, that's entering of the, of the gods into Valhalla. That's, that's right. A different that's piece. right. Um, but uh, but you, you're absolutely right. It is, it is a Wagner opera uh, from the Ring Cycle. Um, but but Tristan and Isolde is a story about love that's ill-fated, right? And so um, it starts with this overture that is famous because it does what, although in a more complex way, it does what Walfish and Zimmer are doing with this little melody, which is that it's basically unresolved. So the overture to Tristan and Isolde is famous because it, it feels like it's always trying to get somewhere, but it doesn't actually get there. And it keeps kind of cycling through itself in different transpositions and going different directions, trying to search for a foothold, and it doesn't quite get it. And so you get the sense of longing, right? And then that same longing motif comes back all the way to the end of the opera, and then it ends with this piece called the Liebestod, which means literally the life death, because you know, there's death and life happening at the same time. I've actually mentioned it years ago on this podcast. Um, and that sense of longing is just like, you know, it's, it's orgiastic at that point of the, mm -hmm. of the piece in a, in a more restrained and I think more, uh, subtle way, Walfish and Zimmer are doing that with this particular motif. They're using it as a way to keep you from feeling like you've actually arrived at home again. And then of course, when you do get the tears in the rain <laughs> piece at the end of, uh, of the soundtrack, you know, you get this thing that is like so clearly harmonically anchored. It's a melody that we've heard before that we know really well, and it feels like a homecoming. And that, you know, as Kay is dying in the snow, is why he has a smile on his face because he found resolution, mm -hmm. right? So resolution has, of course, a narrative angle to it, right? It's an arrival at something. But in a musical sense, it resolution is like a very commonly used musical term. That means, you know, it resolved, it got where it was going, mm -hmm. right? It arrived. And so musically, what they're doing with that motif throughout the whole movie is basically delaying that sense of arrival for us and keeping us searching, just as Kay is constantly searching for who he is, for what this movement is all about, for who Staline is, and for what the future holds. Mm -hmm. To your point about a musical arrival, and I'm going to ask you this because I notice this every time I listen to Tears in the Rain. They do something with that track that Vangelis did not do. So at the what? end of at the end of 2049, you're hearing tears in rain, tears in the rain, whatever. Harrison Ford puts his hand on the glass, and you hear a. Mm. They end it. They end it. Mm. It's got resolution. Yeah, that you're right. Vangelis right, right. did not write that song that way. They ended yeah. it. It found its resolution. It always would go. It always would. They, the song would play and it would go and it would kind of float off into the ether. And it does that in 2049 a little bit. And then it pulls itself back and then they give it an ending. And it's just yeah. perfect. And I thought, you know what? They ended Deckard's story here. Deckard's story ends here. Now, where him, him and Staline go off to, we don't know. We'll probably never know. His story is done. There are other stories in the universe now. And that musical note ends it for us. And I, th I thought that last flourish is just so beautiful. It's just, it's what your heart wants to do, but it never can. And in 2049, they allow you to. Yes, that is a really good point. I, I, I just played the ending of it. Um, and you're right. It, does, it ends with the final chord. So it actually, it concludes. Mm-hmm. 
which is a, a really great observation. And and it's also worth remembering that that's the only audio cue that's directly lifted mm-hmm. and reused from the first movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if you want, you know, an idea of a homecoming, there is no better way to do that, right? Mm-hmm. To take the ending of a movie from 35 years earlier and and give it a final cadence, yeah. give it an actual conclusion, right? Yeah. It's very powerful. And I think that, I mean, you know, we've talked a lot about the ending to 2049 and why it hits so hard. I mean, the, the first time I saw it, I felt like somebody had slammed me in my chest. Yeah. That moment of when the hands touch in the glass and the song ends, and then it goes to black. That That's like just, you know, great filmmakers know how to end things. Great musicians do too, right? You, you can always tell the quality of a musician and a filmmaker, at least in talking about like Western classical music, at mm-hmm. least by how they transition between things, right? By mm-hmm. how they're able to, to get you from here to there through interesting ways. Um, there's a lot of, you know, similar things going on structurally with symphonic music, for example, or, or like the music of Wagner and the, and the films that we're talking about. Um, and both of those things, right? When you look at like a Mahler symphony, for example, another great example of long form storytelling with music, when it ends, there is every single person in that entire auditorium knows that it's the ending, even though the conductor's hands are still up, right? Even though they're, they're allowing that silence to pervade the hall for a while, there's like no question, even if you've never heard the piece before, that that was the ending of it. In a great film also, you, when you arrive to the ending of it, there's this crazy sense of simultaneous awareness of everybody in that theater. If you have been strung along by a great filmmaker by like Denis Villeneuve, you get to the end of that thing and you feel it and everybody inhales, right? You don't exhale, you go, <gasps> Right, and mm-hmm. that moment mm-hmm. is so hard to capture correctly, mm-hmm. and they do it with that ending to that piece. It's beautiful, Jamie. I'm glad you pointed it out. Yeah, it is. It's it is a beautiful ending to again this story we have been on this journey with since 1982, and it was decisive too. It's a decisive ending to Deckard's story. There's no, I mean, there was there has been the discussions. Did Kay die? Is he still alive? And then filmmakers saying, "Oh, that's funny. Yes, he's dead. We never really thought that would be." A point of contention, um, but it was. This was this was the final note, the final lyric, in a, a very beautiful, tragic story. Um, so I, I I thought it was perfect. Um, but even then, I think about the score for 2019 and that last, which we need to go back to, and we will. That last end credits where the door closes and you hear that, which I love that right. track a lot. Um, right. But even when that track ends, it doesn't end; it just fades out. Because it doesn't end. There's not an ending to it. And I think if you listen to like, um, not Opera Sauvage, but uh, Themes by um, Vangelis, there's a, a, there's, there are tracks that he ends and he finishes, but a lot of them, they just fade out. Because I don't know if he knows how to end his music. I think his music is this emotional, these emotional waves that come over him and he, he'll make them and he'll create them and then they'll morph into another wave of another mm. melody, but his music um, seldom ends. One track of his that I absolutely adore is called, oh, what's the name of the track? Oh, that's from Opera Sauvage. Is it, it Opera Sauvage? Okay, I love yeah. that. It's one of my all-time favorite score pieces. Yeah. It feels, it's just amazing. That track ends, um, but it ends in almost like a shattering. Like it's almost an audible shattering. And then like, it sounds like stars flickering at the end. It's very much an ending, but most of his tracks don't, they don't end. Um, So I really felt like to have musicians realize we need to do this audibly, musically, that's a good storyteller. 
Um, I don't know if maybe that was Denis' idea. I don't know whose idea was that. It had to have been all of their idea. Like, this is, no, this is the end of Deckard's story. We need to end this story. So yeah, that last moment is really powerful. It will always be powerful. The story will always feel like it's ended to me. Um, and that's what makes 2049 even more powerful of a film. That is, it isn't a decisive end to a very powerful story. Um, and then, of course, the credits roll and you have that mu music. The music fades up again and it's, I think it's called Blade Runner in titles or what's it called? Or just called Blade Runner 2049. Blade Runner. Yeah. Just Blade Runner. And it's a lot of yeah. guitar. There's some guitar and then it goes through a lot of the motifs of the music through Seawall again, which again, to your point, I didn't really mention. Seawall is really beautiful and emotional. I mean, that is one of the most emotional tracks I've ever heard in my life. Um, it yeah, it's pulls beautiful. at you and it's, it's also a death. I mean, you have a woman dying in water. Um, being drowned in water. And of course, water is a motif. Um, water bringing life, water water bringing death. And that's something we've, we've that, that's come up a lot. We we, we got to do a full episode on that, I think, and have people contribute to, to water symbolism throughout both movies. Because even just on this episode tonight, it's come up, you know, a number of times with the rain, with the snow, but also with the submersion, with the placental, you know, in, environment the angel comes out of. Like, mm -hmm. the, like the idea of like water as a birth and death environment is mm -hmm. all over these films. So and, yeah, we should, I'm bookmarking yeah, that. I mean, even in like uh, sacred texts, they talk about God being in water, God yeah, moving over the face of the water. In fact, that's a great Moby track. As we kind of progress out of this discussion for now, the only last thing that I remember when I saw it in the theaters, which was then removed eventually, was there was a track called Almost Human by Lauren Daigle, who's actually a gifted singer. I'm not a fan of hers, per se. She sounds a lot like Adele. She's like the Christian version of Adele. Again, powerful, amazing voice. She had never seen the film, and she wrote some song called Almost Famous. And I remember when they were doing these... Almost human. Almost, yeah, almost human. <laughs> what a slip. Um, they were doing these virtual, like, or they had this video, and they had Wallfish and Zimmer, and then they brought in Daigle to talk about this song she wrote. And in this discussion, she's like, yeah, I haven't seen the film. I'm like, what? Why would you write a song to a film you haven't seen? Why would you write a song have not knowing any of the themes of what's going on? I'm sure they had discussions with her, but... You want someone to write a song, like for instance, I'm just going to name Enya because that's who I, one of the people that love I love. Yeah. I do, um, unabashedly. But when the, she wrote the song for Academy Award nominated song for The Fellowship of the Ring, what did they do? They sat her down and they had to watch the movie. And then she wrote, she also wrote another song or, yeah, that's in the film itself. So there were two tracks, but they immersed her in the world. And I'm not saying that Blade Runner, I don't think, Blade Runner doesn't need a theme song at the end. It's not fucking Titanic. Like, you don't, there's this thing that was happening a lot when Celine Dion won the Academy Award for My Heart Will Go On. All of a sudden, everybody had a song at the end of the movie. Everyone had a song. And, and most of them had Luther Vandross singing a duet yeah. to somebody else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or Peebo Bryson. On that. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> there was like three people that did most of those for yeah. a few years. Yeah. Um, and it's been this thing where it's, it's I even remember um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is a masterpiece. At the end, after the credits or during the credits, they have some song in Mandarin being sung and it's awful. Not because the song is awful, but the movie doesn't need a song. And I felt like when I was first hearing Almost Famous, or Almost Famous, when I was first hearing Almost Human, <laughs> I was just like, whose decision was this? How 
disconnected from the story are you that you think it needs a song? The mute, the movie is a song. The story is a song. It has its own lyrics. Let it be, let it go. And then, and I'll take some credit for this a little bit. They removed the song after we released that episode saying how terrible it was. They did. And it, uh, it, it was released on some physical, um, CD releases of the score and then it wasn't anymore. Like when you buy, you go yeah. and buy the score on iTunes, it's gone. It's disappeared. You know, yeah. um, it also, it, it wasn't, it, uh, to be fair, it wasn't just written by Lauren Daigle. It was written by her with Michael Hodges and some other people who have done, you know, a lot of music department work elsewhere too. But mm-hmm. it, I'm sure some of them at least saw the movie, but it doesn't feel like it because it feels so incredibly out of place. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. And the lyrics know, are for, horrible. I know it's so bad for a move. And, and uh, of course with black Lotus coming out, you know, people are com- complaining, I think right. Again, about yeah. things that feel anachronistic, like the music choice for that first trailer. Right. Um, I think that uh, it's blade runner is not, it's not an aesthetic and that's something people get wrong a lot. Mm-hmm. It's not a look. It's not a feel. It's a spiritual state. It's an it's immersion. A place you yeah. get to. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the time people cr- try to come up with the trappings of like just using these ideas of like what's human and what's not. And like, you know, or like, am I human? If I realize I'm human, what if I'm not, you know, like these, these lyrics that th- these, these ideas that can feel really trite and, and, you know, played out when they're in the presence of Blade Runner or when they're in the world of Blade Runner or not, if they're true to the source material. And I think that this track very clearly was not true to the source material, right? Especially coming after what you were saying, which was this incredible finality of the way that it ends. And then having 10 minutes of just this like rapturous, you know, greatest hits from the soundtrack music. Mm -hmm. Um, And then to just kind of like end it with this very contemporary sort of adolescent sounding, you know, Christian pop music. Disconnected. Yeah. yeah. It's just so bizarre, right? Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are people who enjoy it. I, I know when that's come up before, people have defended that song, and that's Ooh. more power to them. That's great. I've never heard that, but maybe. Yeah, pe- people people come out of the work okay. and you know say that they like the song. Um, I, I I don't know anybody who has personally, but that being said, um, you know it. Yeah, I think you're right. It it speaks to uh, how the fact that it has not been included subsequently. You know, um, but I think it's it's almost not even worth talking about because it's similar yeah for sure to, for sure. Uh, and, and I mean, there's also just the problem of having decipherable lyrics, right? I mean, a great example from 2019 with decipherable lyrics is is um, is "Kiss Me," right? Which is just a, a, a which Vangelis also wrote, although it sounds nothing like anything else on the soundtrack. And it's it's it works because it's sweet and because it's mm-hmm. nostalgic, and it sounds and like it was made it, in the 40s. Right. But, yeah. it, but the thing is that it wasn't. And that's the key. Whereas having Sinatra and Elvis Presley, people who were making music back then, you know, in the 50s and 60s, especially having their actual 50s and 60s music doesn't sound right because it's of our world. Having a, an invented track by a guy in the 1980s written in the style of something nostalgic feels Blade Runner to mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. because like we've been saying, it's both of the past and of the future at the same time. And it's just this kind of imagined reality it's yeah. just, it's this like love letter from another plane of yeah. existence right um and it's one of my favorites i like i adore that song i listen to it you know every time it comes on the soundtrack i like sit back and i just like take it in but um it's it's you know it's an interesting study and i'm sure we'll do more score episodes in the coming years where we revisit these things again it would be interesting to think of why that for example works right like like what are the reasons why that track is beloved by people even though it's sort of out of place and it has lyrics that everybody can hear and the lyrics are 
have nothing, you know, overtly to do with the world of Blade Runner. That just mm-hmm. it's just this kind of sweet little love song. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it that that is accepted, whereas this Daigle thing um, is really hated by most people who hear it? Right? There's there's reasons for that, and I think that those reasons will be fun to um, to explore. I do want to before we wrap though. I want to make sure we talk about her eyes were green because obviously that's an important oh, I love that an track. important track for for you know for us and for anybody listening to this um narratively it's an important moment in the in the story arc but also the way it's treated musically is uh is I think it's just beautiful. And speaking personally when I was writing the soundtrack to Gethsemane uh which you can still go buy if you want to on Bandcamp and it's also if you haven't listened to our audio drama that Jamie wrote and and Dan was a huge part of as well go back and listen to it. Um, but when I was scoring some of the Rachel material in Gethsemane, that, that was something that I kept coming back to was that track and the vibe that it created for me, which was this wonderful sense of, of not loss, but transference. There's something about that track to me that feels like something that would, this is going to sound funny, so bear with me, but it's almost like something that would be played at the funeral of an elephant, Hmm. you know? It's like it's it's there's something something magisterial and miraculous mm-hmm. about it when you hear it. It's this it's 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 recognizing what life can do, right? What a life that's momentous can mean to people, and the fact that that life is no longer here with us, but now suffuses everything, mm-hmm. right? That's what that music says to me, especially the beginning, that beautiful descending progression at the beginning. It just feels like your heart's ripped out of your chest, mm-hmm. but it's ripped out of your chest because you're realizing that her presence is just. It's just over everything mm-hmm. now, mm-hmm. right? That this whole legacy, the the world breaking, you know, as as Joshi says earlier, that she did it, that she is the thing that changed it all. Yep. And in the act of changing it all, she left. And that loss is just all over everything mm-hmm. in this movie. And it's so powerful to hear that track for me. Yeah, I would agree. I, I that moment, as I've discussed on this show many times, was the most powerful moment in the film which led up to us seeing her again uh, or a, a cipher of her, a version of her, which actually really could have been her. Honestly, we've had those discussions as well, but even before she appears, you hear that music and then you hear those, the, the dialogue and he's saying, is it the same now as then? The moment you met her. these years you looked back on that day, drunk on the memory of its perfection. How shiny her lips, how instant your connection. And you're hearing this music rise up and then you see they cut to a scene from 2019 of Rachel walking towards us. And I couldn't breathe. Like, yeah, this woman, yeah, this woman that you're feeling, this person, this this thing, whatever she is, that's all over 2049, then iterates and walks out of the literal shadows to see us from the past because they show her. And then she walks out in real life. Like it's, yeah, it's it that and that music, man, like if memory had a, a melody, it would be that. Yeah, it's so powerful. It really is. And and that I, I we talked about it before. But yeah, when he's talking about the shine of her lips and things. Yeah. And then it shows her in that beautiful slow motion walking out in this incredible remastered footage from the original film. Mm-hmm. And it's accompanied by that music. It is it is truly 
it is a moment of timelessness. Mm-hmm. Just like I've said so many times tonight, when you're when I was watching that, I remember for the first time. I'm, I'm, my, I have such strong memories of that whole sequence, mm-hmm. and I remember not being able to breathe. For me a too. Me too. I remember just suspending, yeah. like, "Oh my god." Yeah. And then, and then as it was happening, being like, I have seen this before because it's footage from the movie, right? From the first film, mm-hmm. but it feels, so, it's hitting so different yeah. right now. We're to the point where I really had to think like, was it actually like, was that new footage that was inserted? No, that was the actual first time we see her in the original movie too. But like the way that it slots in there is so powerful. And it took me out for a moment of the movie that I was in and it, just temporarily displaced me. Yeah. It said, you don't have an anchor anymore, yeah. right? You are that kid. It's funny, actually, you know, I've talked so much on the show about the first time I saw Blade Runner, I it was on this VHS tape that I bought from this like hippie store when I was a little kid. I, we actually live like a mile from that hippie store now because we moved back to where, you know, I originally came from. So I drive by that store and every single time I drive by it, I remember mm-hmm. getting that initial VHS copy when I was 12. Mm-hmm. And uh and I and I'm in that moment I am that 12-year-old again watching Rachel walk walk across the, str- the mm-hmm. screen. Mm-hmm. I'm that 12-year-old who was alive, you know, before September 11th before I lost my innocence as a as a a person of the world like before I lost my innocence as a kid before you know, but back when things were so simple mm-hmm. and back when science fiction was this, you know, imagined reality and not something that like in 2049 is is like way uncomfortably close to what we're actually living through right to this reverie and i'm watching that scene as a you know i guess 32 year old at the time and i'm and i'm in that moment completely in two places in my life at at once just like deckard is right Mm -hmm. and then she walks out of the shadows like you're saying and that score builds up and it's just it's it's really almost overwhelming and i think part of what makes that scene overwhelming isn't just the music it's not just the footage it's also that we know that Deckard has divorced himself emotionally from that past. He gave up his daughter. He gave up his love, the love of his life. And he was, you could see it all over. There was nothing soft about him anymore. He had lost that softness that you saw at the end of 2019. He was this gruffy, curmudgeonly, old, older man that was just done with life. And then he's forced to see in his mind, and they play, the, you know, they play the, uh, the audio he's forced to see her again in his mind this woman that he loved and it breaks him down he starts crying his performance also sells that and then he's forced to even see her physically so it's coming at all angles and he's given her up rachel is gone he doesn't want to even say her name and then they flood her they flood him with her um to get some type of response from him and they get it you know it's powerful and think about how no, no, I was just going to say, it's, yeah, it's it's powerful. It's just a, a wholly powerful moment. It's one of the most powerful moments in a film I've ever seen. 100% agree with you. And it's something that could have gone so much worse than it did. Because we've seen that scene in countless movies, right? We've seen, you know, the, the myth of the recreated, you know, lost love, or we've seen you know, somebody in a movie watching home movies when they were younger, these these things that play with our nostalgia and play with our, you know, emotional connection to the past. And it comes across syrupy and it comes across saccharine. It comes across like an easy emotional blow, right? Like it comes across the way that a lot of books that I read to my children come across, which is like, it's clearly engineered to just get you crying, right? But like the way it's handled in 2049 is so complicated and there's so much meaning behind it that it punches through and it keeps the emotional weight of that connection to the past for us as viewers as well as for Deckard. And it also like just infuses it with all of these other layers of meaning that we've been adding to it 
through this intervening, not just the decades between the movies, but within 2049 itself, the more we've learned about what actually happened, the more we've pieced this thing together with Kay, the more we have heard that motif come back that we were talking about that was unmoored and that we've been searching with it, you know, and trying to figure out the answers. And as it starts to come together, those answers start to become really, really difficult mm -hmm. for us to accept because we know what that would mean for people just to live with that kind of loss and that kind of uncertainty and the kind of fear that Deckard has been living with, not only because he lost the love of his life, but because he lost his daughter in the process, right? Because he was forced to get rid of her and to, and to put her into safekeeping and to like, you know, this guy that was so afraid to open the book up to show, you know, himself emotionally to the world who was drinking himself to oblivion in the first movie did. And within a matter of what seemed to be weeks, everything fell apart for him, right? He had this, this one thing in his whole fucking life, which by the time the events of 2049 come around is seven decades plus long. Mm -hmm. This guy who was living a long life, who has been through a lot of things and had this one little moment in there where he actually lived authentically. This one little thing in there where he opened up mm -hmm. after, after Batty's death, when he ran with Rachel and when they found love and then it was taken from them, right? That one, we see all of that in this moment and we see like how, how pivotal it is, not just for Deckard, but for the entire universe because in the loss of that love, as we were saying before, lies the future of salvation for replicants, mm -hmm. whether or not Deckard is one of them. It's an, just an amazingly emotionally powerful moment and mm -hmm. the scoring there to me sells it 100% and it doesn't overdo it. It doesn't make it corny. It makes it feel like the death of an elephant. It makes mm -hmm. it feel like nature passing into the unknown. Mm -hmm. It's just an amazing moment. It is. It is. I think it's probably a good place to wrap it for now. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously this movie continues to be very powerful for us. It gets, in my opinion, more powerful. I haven't seen it in a few months now. Usually I've watched the movie every month typically, but I haven't seen it in a while. But it's also a lot to it's almost like Alien 3 where there's a lot of tragedy in it. So it's hard to engage it. Whereas I could watch the first film pretty easily. There's a lot of hope in it. Um, but whatever the case is, it's great to be talking with you again. It's been a long time since we've had an episode where here we are just discussing and philosophizing and doing what we do best as a show. Um, so thank, thank you everyone for listening. Uh, a little bit of an announcement. We are going to go back to our bi-weekly or sorry bi-monthly is it or bi-monthly release schedule bi-weekly but if you're in europe i think it means something different yeah because yeah. we've gotten pushback on this too the idea is it's going to be going back not just once a month but every other week yeah so we will release next week and then we'll release in two, two weeks later and we're going to go back and there's a lot coming up there is the black lotus series which is debuting or premiering november something i don't think there's a date yet they just said november 2021 so we'll see there's a lot to discuss there a lot of controversy there um but again we're happy to be back and to be uh doing what we do best and thank you guys for supporting us for listening to us if you want to if you do if those of you who don't support us would like to go to bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support sign up for four bucks a month and all that money goes back into the show hosting fees events t-shirt designs all sorts of things and uh, we, we really appreciate those who do support us. So. Yeah. And we are currently in the process of coming up with some cool new perks for our patrons, both existing and 
yet to join. Yep. So be on the lookout for that. And if you're looking, you're kind of on the fence about whether or not to join, you know, we've got tons of coverage coming out. We're doing Candyman next week. Uh, we're doing Gattaca in the coming weeks. We're doing a lot of, you know, classics and also current, you know, first run movies that are in theaters you can go see. Um, so it's like additional content and we are adding to it and we're really excited to be back. And I'm, I'm just thrilled to be talking about this movie again with you because I feel like it's been a while. Yes, it and has. And I feel so, uh, so I just, I missed it. And I missed you and I missed Dan, but, you know, he's here in spirit. Yep. And we're going to forge on with Adam and brighter days are ahead. Yep. So thanks everybody. Thank you guys. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.